right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN with Adam Drovetta. I am Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star at 340. We continue on with our KU club interviews, this time Kansas Quidditch. Aaron Grant is going to join us at 425. That brought to you by Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence. Shout out, uh, by the way, to one of our regular guests, Shane Jackson, who was a member of the Quidditch team. And then uh, Dan Bonner, who is going to be one of the color analysts on the call of the KU game and all the action in the Midwest region in Chicago will join us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. I was planning on, obviously, it being a very KU-heavy show, and it still will be today, but be remiss not to start today with uh, the big news in the sports world, let alone here around the area, uh, earlier this morning reports started emerging that, and this kind of came out of nowhere, but um, the Tyreek Hill and the contract negotiations had gone so sour. Now, I'm sure, I, I doubt it came out of nowhere for those parties, but just in terms of coming out of nowhere from being reported, this went from zero to 100, and I don't know how much the Christian Kirk getting paid a giant contract. Devontae Adams just got mega paid mattered here. I think the Adams one specifically mattered very much. I believe that Drew Rosenhaus and Tyreek Hill were in a position where they were waiting to see what Adams got so that they could try to trump that or at least be right there. Um, And when the Chiefs saw the Devontae Adams deal and they were asked, you know, hey, we want to be the highest paid receiver. They said, no, not going to happen. And Tyreek Hill and his party were told they could pursue trade opportunities. Uh, came down to the Dolphins and the Jets. They both made offers. Um, it was contingent on Tyreek Hill signing an extension. So then it came down to Tyreek Hill, which one he wanted to take. He ended up going to Miami to play with the Dolphins. Um, the Chiefs, in return for trading away Tyreek Hill, six time All Pro receiver, or not All Pro, Pro Bowl receiver, um, every year he's been in the league, are receiving pick 29, so a late first round pick. Pick 50, that's kind of like a middle second round pick, a fourth this year, and then 2023 fourth and sixth. So five picks, um, three of which are more dart throws than anything. Two of them are higher picks. Then the Dolphins turn around and made Tyreek Hill the highest paid receiver by average annual value at $30 million a year, not by overall. Devontae Adams still got overall more money, but Adams got a five-year deal. Tyreek Hill is getting a four-year $120 million deal. So as we go through this, I, I think there's three kind of lenses we need to look this through. There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future because they all have different kind of ways of evaluating this trade. Uh, the first is the past. The past is always going to say it's very difficult to trade star players that you've developed so many memories with. Um, and whether that matters or not, it's at least good to point out now that Tyreek Hill is no longer a chief. As integral as as any player, maybe outside of Patrick Mahomes, to not just the Chiefs' success since Tyreek Hill has been there, but just in terms of the entertainment factor 
of Chiefs football. And at the end of the day, sports are entertainment. And yes, the most entertaining part of sports is when your team wins. So it's not really going to matter how you get there as long as you win. But he has been a very entertaining player to watch. The Chiefs don't win a Super Bowl without him. The amount of amazing plays, the amount of joy, uh, the Bills game, you think of the last touchdown uh, before the 13-second drive that you go down and then it goes to overtime. He has provided Chiefs fans an unthinkable amount of good moments. And for my money, he is probably the Chiefs' best receiver in franchise history. Uh, yeah, I, I won't I, I won't find a way to disagree with that. I think the only receiver of the of catches that you could even equal him with is any wide receiver and it's it's Travis Kelsey or Tony Gonzalez. But in terms of actual wide receivers, yeah, I I I, I can't find off the top of my head and I think if I dig further I won't be able to. And it goes back even pre Patrick Mahomes. Um think of the 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 halftime before halftime in Dallas. That was Alex Smith throwing yeah. the ball. That was amazing. Because everyone just thought, oh, you're going to send four guys deep uh, and, and you know, Alex Smith is going to heave a ball and you'll go for a Hail Mary. And they didn't do that. They threw it about, what, 25-ish yards in the air. And that illustrated not only Tyree Kill's freakish just front, you know, just straightaway speed, but his ability to cut because he dodged. You basically had three or four Chiefs players to block five or six um Cowboys defenders and so you got you had some blocks out there but then you had Tyreek able to juke a couple guys it was amazing to watch um so yeah I, I think you're you're you know every wasp yeah like, wa yeah there's every, so many crazy everything you everything you just said is correct he entertainment wise and the fact that all of us or I think most everybody listening currently now owns a super, a super Bowl 54 champions t-shirt that's not I mean you know, I, I would argue Patrick, and I, I don't think you would argue against this, Patrick Mahomes more important, but I can't find a scenario in which that happens without Tyreek Hill either. I mean, he's been um, he's been amazing, and as, as we move on, I do want to, I think personally, and, you know, I know we're talking about past now, but as we get to present and future, um, I view it as a good sign no matter how you feel about this trade I view it as a good sign that you have a front office who at least with this decision is not getting overly attached to um, a player just because of memories that they're like okay you did amazing things for us great job um, Tyreek Hill I don't at all blame Tyreek Hill for saying hey this is the money I want he has every right to ask for it and and Clearly, the Dolphins say he deserves it, um, but it, it, I, I kind of, in, you know, I, I applaud the Chiefs in spite of the that amazing past. Saying okay, but that was the past. Our job, you know, my job as Brett Veach is is to think about the future. Um, but you, there's nothing you can, uh, except on the field, on the field, there's nothing you can say negative about Tyreek Hill's performance. Okay, let's get to the present then. The present is that the Chiefs have now traded away Tyreek Hill. Um, and again, we'll get to the future here in a second because this does open up the future. But as far as the now, the Chiefs are without a doubt a worse team today than they were before um, the day started, right? Um, their current receiver depth chart is Juju Smith-Schuster, who we both were cool with the signing, 
But if you told me before the offseason Juju Smith-Schuster is going to be their number one receiver, that's a little scary. I even said on these airwaves, I said I love the the trade, or I mean I love the signing of Juju Smith-Schuster as long as, I said these words, I said as long as that doesn't mean that they looked at the Devontae Adams contract and went, whoa, we can't hold on to Tyreek yeah. Hill, and that's the reason they got Juju Smith-Schuster. And I think that is clearly, I think, yeah. that, now look, maybe they get Juju anyway. Maybe if Tyreek Hill says, no, I'll take $20 bucks a year instead of 30 they get both. But as time goes on, I think it's pretty clear that, um, that yes, that, that, the, that the Juju was the residual effect of Tyreek and Drew Rosenhaus saying, no, we want more than Devontae Adams. And so right now, the receiver depth chart outside of Juju, McCole Hardman and Josh Gordon is your number three right now, and that oh. didn't really go out to work. So, I mean, I would argue that Tyreek Hill, probably outside of Patrick Mahomes, honestly, is maybe the most important, or was the most important player on the Chiefs because it wasn't just the statistical value, but it was also, he literally changed the way defenses played you, right, with with his ability to get out over the top. So, also, in, in terms of the now... The Chiefs do have a lot of draft picks, and and that's more of a near future thing. But, I mean, the present is in, like, this season. Um, I kind of personally feel like they still could have, should have got more. I don't know. It, it looked like the other trade that they had on the table with the Jets was even less than this. So, I guess that's a positive. I just, I see this as you're trading away one of the top receivers in the league, one of the most impactful players. Nobody really does what Tyreek Hill does, and... You didn't solve any of your issues, I guess, is my issue. Like, you didn't get any players back to, because you have a lot of holes on the roster right now. You have holes at receiver. You have holes basically everywhere on defense. Maybe not as much linebacker. Maybe not as much safety, but very big holes at corner and on the defensive line. You didn't really solve any of those. And, yes, you did get some more picks, so you could solve some of those with picks. But, like, with the edge rusher thing. There's been this talk that, hey, the Chiefs could trade up. Maybe they can work their way up into 20, into the 15 range to draft a good edge rusher and help fix one of your holes there. If you look at, like, one of those draft value charts that shows you, like, what value everything has, it's going to cost you pick 29 that you just acquired and your pick 30 just to get up to, like, 11. Yeah. And that's going to be your edge rusher, and then that kind of eliminates the advantage of, oh, we traded away Tyreek Hill and grabbed all these extra picks to get a bunch of young, good players. You're going to have to trade up to get one of those. Uh, Right now, the Chiefs have the worst receiver room in the division. They have the thinnest secondary in the division. I I think without a doubt, this made the Chiefs a lot worse in the here and now, and it is unfortunate, too. You wish you could have done this move. Like, here's the other part of this. You saved money with Tyreek Hill, and that'll help you in future seasons, sure. But if you would have been able to do this right when free agency started, you know how great that would have been? Because then you could have gone out there and said, okay, we can pay, you know, whoever. Allen Robinson, right? Now you can come in and be our number one receiver. You're kind of in that second wave of free agency. There aren't those options. You can go out and get an Odell Beckham Jr. or a Marquez Valdez Scantling, but Beckham Jr. is coming off a torn ACL in the Super Bowl. When's he going to be ready? Marquez Valdez Scantling, solid deep threat receiver used for a certain purpose, but you know he's he's a fine receiver. Are you fine with him being your number two? Probably not. That wasn't good enough for Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. So um, I just I. It, it kind of stinks that it worked out timing-wise this way, and I don't feel like this solved any of the Chiefs' current issues, at least for the near term. 
I um, I'll say this about the the compensation itself. I agree. If 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 what you were wanting, and Derek, we talked about this off the air, you were wanting a, a, a an actual player in return. And if that's what what of, of you were wanting, that's perfectly valid to want. I mean, when you look at this roster, it's perfectly valid to want a player in return. But if you just look at it in terms of draft compensation, they got more. I would argue they got more. Well, I don't even have to argue it. They got more than than uh, the Packers got for Devontae Adams. But you are right in that that does very little. I mean, unless you use that second round pick and hit on a player the same way you hit on uh, Creed Humphrey in the second in the second round. But as it as of this moment, you're right. It doesn't improve the Chiefs. I really, really, really am in favor of this trade. I really like this trade. However. I can't sit here and craft an argument as to why I like it that has anything to do with the 2022 season. Well, I will say this, and I know you would agree with this. Um, The one positive that you have for the Chiefs, as much as, you know, because like I said, the future, we'll get to this in a second. But um, for the here and now, as much as this hurts them for the here and now, and as much as this almost feels like it's closing the window of the current group of the Chiefs for winning a Super Bowl, like that's that's what the idea here here is for the future. It's building the next group. It's building the next core of players that are going to surround Patrick Mahomes to contend for more Super Bowls in the next five or six year window, right? But for this window, it's probably closed till that next one opens and up. It, it hurts. I want to add as far as the present goes. It hurts that you are getting. A, I, I think for the future, it's a good sign that um, that you have a front office willing to get rid of a player who still has a lot left in the tank. But for the present. I mean, our, the last memory we get of Tyree Kill is that amazing catch and run toward the end of the Bills game. Well, like yeah. they they're getting rid of a guy who is still great right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the Chiefs fans never got a chance to get sick of Tyree Kill because he had a year or two where he's kind of lost a step. They're getting rid of him at. Maybe he's on the back end of the peak of his powers, but he's still at the peak of his powers. Yeah, and uh, I think if you would have been able to actually win the AFC Championship and win the Super Bowl, this might be easier to to deal with because you would have got another title. But the beauty is, even though you did get worse today, you still have Patrick Mahomes, and there is still very much a world where he just goes off and you you win the division and do crazy things. All right, but let's get to the future. Uh, This gives the Chiefs more long-term flexibility. It is very Patriots-esque in terms of the move. Um, I... I do wonder, though, like when you look at those Patriots teams, as much as it is Patriots-esque, those teams have always had like really good defenses around Tom Brady, and right now that's not the case, but maybe that's the idea of what they want to do long-term with this. I am a little worried that, and again, this is something we won't know. Like Even if even if it was something that didn't bother or that did bother Patrick Mahomes, he's probably not going to come out next time he's asked it and be like, are you cool with this? And be like, yeah, I love it, you know? Yeah. He's not going to lie like he's going to lie about that in the media if you ask him about it I'm sure because he's trying to be a good teammate. There is a little worry for me that you know we saw this wasn't the only thing that led to it but Tom Brady eventually led, left the Patriots yeah. and went to the Buccaneers. He wanted more weapons around him so he went to the Bucs. Aaron Rodgers ended up staying with the Packers but it took a while to to kind of feel that rift. You have to make sure that Patrick Mahomes is okay here because Every one of these conversations about the future of the Chiefs revolves around Patrick Mahomes. Um, But the question becomes now what you do with the flexibility because you have a lot more flexibility. You have a lot more draft picks. You have a lot more salary cap. Those can be great things. If you take advantage of them, 
this is going to be a great trade for the Chiefs, and we're going to look back and say, can you believe they got this guy and this guy and that guy in the draft, and they reloaded and retooled and all those things. Look back on the Jared Allen trade. Now, a lot of fans didn't like that, Yeah, but I will say this. I think a difference and maybe a reason that was easier to stomach is because the the Chiefs were consistently going like 6-10, and and you know, they, they weren't Super Bowl contenders with Jared Allen. So maybe that was even easier to stomach. But fans really hated that, and you wind up with Jamal Charles and Brandon Albert. The worry for me is that we have not seen the greatest track record of of Brett Veach in the draft. He actually had a great draft last year, though. So maybe that's you know a good sign, and maybe it's more of an indication that the draft is just kind of a crapshoot, and you know you can't totally judge. But I mean, there have been a lot of bad drafts in there. The Chiefs currently have zero receivers under contract for twenty twenty three. Um, they've in the past, shown a track record to trade too much for certain players. They've overpaid a lot of players, and it just comes down to now, even though they do have more flexibility and more, I guess, firepower at their disposal to fill out the roster, how much do you trust the front office and Brett Veach? Because, again, there have been a lot of great moves. Great draft last year. There have been some good signings, like a Tyron Matthew, but there have also been some big flubs, and I can't help but wonder, because you see this basically boils down to we decided to trade Tyreek Hill because of the fact we didn't want to re-sign him. $30 million is a lot of money, a lot of money for any player, especially a non-quarterback. But what I look at here, it's hard for me to distance from my mind. You basically, Orlando Brown, let's say he gets $20 million a year. He's a good tackle, not a great one. I don't know if he's top 10, but he's probably close to it. And you paid Justin Reed, who's probably about an average, above average safety, $10 million a year. Would you rather have Orlando Brown and Justin Reed for $30 million or Tyreek Hill for 30 Because I know which one I'd rather have. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I Because I I'd just, rather I, be here today being like, oh, they traded Orlando Brown. Yeah, that's a good point. I just, I, I, I think a protected Patrick Mahomes... And again, you can find protection for Patrick Mahomes that isn't named Orlando Brown. So it's not like they would just be lining up four offensive linemen. Um, but I think a protected Patrick Mahomes does more for his wide receiver crew than Tyreek Hill does for Patrick Mahomes. Does that make sense? Um, yes. But so I, I would. I think I, you can find a serviceable replacement at left tackle with the rest of the line that I'd rather have Tyreek Hill. Yeah, but I you're right. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, Tyreek Hill is is a top three at his position. Jo, uh, Orlando Brown's not top three at his position, uh, and Justin Reed's certainly not top three at his position. So yeah, Tyreek Hill is a fantastic player. Um, I always t- now look. I, I want to put out the possibility that Orlando Brown's not going to get signed long term. That they're gonna. And again, this goes back to this. You're, you're using up a heap of the picks that you just got for Tyreek Hill for one player, I would present the the possibility that the Chiefs are going to trade up and get a left tackle in this class and do what they did with Brandon Albert and Eric Fisher and have one guy have your left tackle franchise for a year and have your right, left tackle the future play right tackle for his rookie year and then move him the, the next year. Um, I think that's a possibility. I don't think it's the most likely scenario. But, yeah, I think for $30 million – that's a really tough one because you are you are putting exactly where that money would go, and that's in Orlando Brown and Justin Reed. But as a principle, I would almost in for somebody not a quarterback, I would almost always be opposed to paying a pl- one individual player that much money. 
He's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to take a timeout here, and then we're going to switch gears, talk a little KU basketball. Jesse Newell join us in 15 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Our daily poll for today at RCST 1320. Do you like the return the Chiefs got in the Tyreek Hill trade? I'm going to say yes. You're leaning no, right? Yes. Um, I'll lean yes. I'm going to say that I think a huge majority of the voters will agree with you. Yeah, I think so. Uh, just I, because. I also want to be clear. Well, I, I don't want to speak for you. You're open. You're saying no in the immediate, but open to the possibility that they could turn it into a positive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am. Um, I am just, like you said, if, if you. I don't know. Maybe it's just I trust Bill Belichick more. Like, if I saw the well, Patriots do he, this. He has a longer track record. Exactly. So maybe that's why. Beach. But, you know, if I saw, let, let's just hypothetically say Tyreek Hill was on the Patriots all those years, right? If I saw Bill Belichick do this, I'd be like, wow, that's interesting. But I'd he be knows like, something. He probably yeah. knows. Yeah, right. Uh, Whereas I, with, with this staff, I've seen Brett Veach strike out on a lot of big moves in the past. It yeah. gives me a little trepidation. That's fair. Um and I also think it's like we talked about. You can't. There's no argument to be made that this improves the Chiefs immediately. Yeah. There's no argument. You cannot. And that's hard to swallow from yeah. a sports fan perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You, to you, say, hey, let's punt on this year. We'll it, go for it, it next and year. It right? sucks. Yeah. It really sucks. Especially, you've officially declared that Super Bowl the the whatever. If you want to divide the Patriots Super Bowl windows into whatever four or five different windows under Tom Brady, and if the Chiefs are going to have that same number, hopefully they do. Um, this window's closed. You can you can declare this window has closed with two appearances and one championship, and no matter what, unless you go four for four, which I don't think anybody thought they would, there is always, especially when the season ends the way it did, there's going to be a little bit of, oh, look at all the ways they could have been, you know, they could have hoisted another trophy. Yep, exactly. All right, I do want to get to some KU basketball talk. Jesse Newell's going to join the show here. In about 10 minutes, your RCST NCAA tournament coverage is brought to you by CycleZone Power Sports. Big city selection and small town service on bikes, off-road vehicles, and watercraft located off Highway 24 in Topeka at CycleZone Power Sports. Make that fun and exciting purchase you know you've been wanting for the spring and summer ahead. Your RCST NCAA tournament coverage also brought to you by Panky Foundation Repair. What's the key to a strong team? A strong foundation. It's the same for a house. Get your home's foundation inspected today for free with Panky Foundation Repair. Call them 785-505-0577. KU takes on Providence on Friday. I I remember talking about this um, here on the show back in 2018, which was the last time KU was in the Sweet 16. They played another four seed in Clemson. And that year, Clemson even though they were a good team. I think they finished top 15 on Ken Palm that year. Again, objectively a good team. Not a lot of people were expecting them to make it to the Sweet 16 because it's just like sometimes when you get teams who are four or five seeds who aren't your traditional teams you're used to seeing, those just immediately if, become the upset pitch, right? If Duke is is a four, a lot of people, are, or, or even Kansas, oh, that's a scary yeah. four. But yeah, yeah. When, when Clemson's the four, no one's going, ooh, that's a scary four looking there. And so that's kind of the case with Providence this year was the case with Clemson that year. 
And Clemson, if you remember that year, in the second round, they played that Auburn team. And that was an Auburn team that was a year away. The next year, that Auburn team made the Final Beating Four. Beating KU on the way exactly. to a Final Four. Good thing that, that that Auburn team maybe didn't play that KU team, although they probably would have matched up better based on the personnel. But nonetheless, um, that Auburn team, which was, again, year greener and everything, got destroyed by Clemson in the second round of uh, the NCAA tournament that year. 84-53. to uh, it, it was incredible. I, I mean... I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you of what Clemson like shot from the field. No, that I day. just I'm I'm on the Wikipedia page with the bracket. I'm just seeing the final score. But yeah, they they just they destroyed them, and you know it, it made that game in the Sweet 16 for Kansas taking on Clemson a lot more interesting because in, instead of in normal years, if you said, "Oh, Clemson's their Sweet 16, they're going to be fine," it became, "Man, maybe Clemson is like just really really good." And it started to, you know, worry some people. And Clemson did end up making it a close game in the end there. They had that crazy comeback in that game. And, yeah, and by the way, Clemson, I think a lot of people were thinking about Michigan in 2013 when that yeah. comeback was happening. Yes. Uh, Clemson, by the way, in that game against Auburn, went 10 of 26 from three. They shot 54% from the field. They just had a, a really good game. And I remember we were talking about on this very show, well, what would you rather have happen, though? Because you have a whole... I guess not a whole week, but four or five days to prep for the game. Would you rather see the team you're playing just absolutely go off and see them at their A-plus game for a couple reasons? One, because you don't expect teams to play their A-plus game back-to-back games, but also because you get to, on tape, see the best version of themselves to properly prepare? Or would you rather have the alternative? Because I think I'd rather have that. Yeah, you don't have to dig far to show. And that's, by the way, the case with Providence. They just murdered. Richmond. You don't have to dig far to show your team, hey, look what this team just did. Um and you this is what they look like when they're abs- they're they're at their absolute best. Uh and I keep I keep going back and forth on this game. Um I think it's right to KU's favored, but I'm always I'm always nervous and scared as a favorite. Providence is eight and one this year against the spread as an underdog. Yeah. I mean they're Which they are. Um so but look, they're a four seed. They're good, you know, they're mm-hmm. they're a four seed for a reason. But yeah, I, I I think uh and I I could very much picture us in a scenario that if they had just clawed their way through with an overtime win over Richmond, we would be sitting here going, "Oh man, they're, you know, be easier to overlook them." Yeah, exactly. And so now there's no reason to think that KU should overlook them. Uh again, it, now it goes back to are they going to be too tight and that's on the players and on self to figure out a way to prevent that from happening. But yeah, I I would agree. If I had to choose, how are you going to pick that you know that that opponent coming in? How would you? I would want them on their off their best game by far. Yeah, I would too. So I I, I don't know if that helps in any way. But Providence just shot over fifty percent from three in that Richmond game. They're going to be a difficult matchup. I think in a lot of ways they're the oldest team remaining in the field. I think average age is like twenty three and a half, something like that. So without a doubt, yeah, they're like BYU. Seriously, they're they're going to be a good team. I think it will be a good game. I like Providence against the number. I haven't totally decided who I like for the game. Uh, we're going to talk more with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star coming up on the other side with Adam Brevet. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. 340 here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN and KLWN.com. Joined by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star and KansasCity.com. Uh, Jesse, back to the story from 
about a week and a half ago about matchups that KU should want, should want to avoid. Well, one of the ones to want was the four seed with Providence. You've taken some heat uh, on Twitter, uh, as always, I guess, with uh, teams who are unhappy not understanding certain things with analytics and metrics. But nonetheless, um, Providence was in that category there, and here we are in the Sweet 16. Providence continuing to find ways to win. Kevin Flaherty mentioned yesterday that Providence, even in their blowout win against Richmond, was on shot quality, not expected to win. Um, What is it about the Friars that makes you think this is favorable for KU to get to play them here in the Sweet 16? Well, it's pretty simple. They're seven-and-a-half-point favorites. I mean, um, you don't normally get that in the Sweet 16. And we've talked about this before, but, you know, Kansas is a one seed, but this isn't Bill Self's best team. I mean, this is not like 2020 where they're overwhelmingly dominant and you feel good about their chances against anybody or 2008 or even a team like 2010 or 2011. Um, This is a good Bill Self team. And obviously you're in a one seed, but it's, you know, back of the – barrel for the number one seeds overall so to be an almost eight point favorite in this particular game it's really beneficial and and that's what i've been talking about this whole time you know providence is an outlier they're a one in two decade outlier uh we just haven't seen a team like this that's been able to win basically every single close game that they play in games aside by 10 or less and then completely get blown out of the gym by other teams and their losses opponents and their losses and what that makes for is um, you know, if you think about this from kind of a big picture perspective, it's kind of like if you eliminate the arbitrary endpoints, which we shouldn't do for resumes and we shouldn't do for win loss record, but you know, why are basketball games 40 minutes? Because they are right. I mean, we just don't question it. They are. But if we just, let's say we just sewed all those games together, all those 40 minutes together for the course of the season and just said, how good were you over the course of the season? This probably just team doesn't match up very well. You know what I mean? Because, they, in 40-minute segments, they get blown out, and in another 40-minute segments, they win by, like, one or two. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're trying to say here is that Providence, whether you want to word, use the L word, which I've gotten in trouble for, but uh, lucky, <laughs> fortunate, whatever you want to say, they are an outlier. And Providence's fans should not apologize. Ed Cooley should not apologize for winning games. But the fact of the matter is the reason I had him ranked so low on my ballot is the exact reason um, that ended up happening. On a neutral court, they're seven and a half point underdogs to Kansas. And if you're KU, you absolutely would sign up for that in any game when you're in the Sweet 16. Okay, well, let's give a little, uh, you know, pub for, for Providence here, I guess. What, what is it that Providence does, or is there a, uh, an aspect of the Friars that uh, you think could challenge KU the most in this matchup? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a couple things. You know, if you look statistically, they're a team that I always think of the try-hard stat, um, and that to me is offensive rebounding and getting the free throw line. Providence is good at both. So, I mean, that's a good coaching job if you're Ed Cooley. He's getting his guys to try hard in that sort of way. kind of reminds me of West Virginia or TCU, uh, kind of reflecting their own coaches in that regard, whether it's Jamie Dixon or Bob Huggins, where maybe the shots don't get in, maybe they do, but you can depend on effort from those teams, and that makes them difficult to play against. I put up a video today kind of talking about Kansas going against Creighton and a specific ball screen defense. We want to get really analytical here, uh, really into the weeds. But uh, drop coverage on ball screen basically means the big man kind of continues to play back, and he allows guards to shoot mid-range jumpers if they want to, uh, tries to make sure he can guard the roll man and the pick-and-roll guy. And KU did had a good offensive game against Creighton, so I don't want to take that away from them. And 
usually drop coverage is kind of a passive way to play. Um, so KU did not turn it over often, which is good. But then again, Creighton got KU to take a bunch of mid-range jumpers, whether it was Remy Martin or Ochai Abaji. So I think KU needs to attack that a little bit better. We heard Bill Self talk about this yesterday. He said, uh, kind of joking around, that his team kind of resembled a third-grade recreational team where um, whenever somebody gets a rebound, four guys go and run to them because uh, that's what you do. Uh, and that's kind of what his team did when they panicked a little bit when Creighton was really giving strong help in the lane is they kind of panicked and kept cutting toward the basket and really – they needed to space the floor and get themselves open three-point shots, or if nothing else, create space for guys like Remy Martin and Ochai Abaji to uh, be able to drive and or find shooters when they're able to draw some help. So KU needs to keep the four spread on the offensive end, and I think that you know that drop coverage is something that Providence has done all year, and they're going to continue to do against Kansas. On the other end, I think what Providence does so well is that they play off the ball, and this is kind of unlike what most teams KU has faced this year. You know, on in the Big 12, it's a lot of ball screen stuff, but um, they run guys around, and KU switches a lot. You know, they switch the guard-to-guard stuff, and you have to have good communication, good pointing. Late in the season, that's been a big part of KU taking off defensively, is that they've gotten better with that. But when it's looked bad earlier in the past, uh, it's looked really bad for Kansas. So they've got to be on point with that, because as you saw against Richmond, when they kind of run around like craziness underneath the basket and, and set some screens and free a shooter and get them to the outside, that guy doesn't need much space. They can drain threes. And um, probably this is an amazing shooting three-point team, but the last two games they have been, and they are confident enough they will take those shots when they can get them. So I was looking at the most cutting teams that Kansas has faced this season, and uh, K-State is number one on that list. So kind of think about um, what Nigel Pack was able to do against Kansas when KU's switching was not good in, in the second half of that game in Manhattan where Dewan Harris sort of had to take him mono a mono, which is what normally Kansas does. So that's kind of the worst-case scenario for KU is to not be able to do that, not be able to call out those switches, not be able to stick with shooters and watch Providence shoot them to death. So we'll see what happens, but those are a couple of things I'd be concerned about if I was Kansas going into this matchup. Well, that's not great. Um, as far as the transition defense for Providence, I, I, I thought I saw something going into South Dakota State game. It was not great. I would think that would be something that, that Kansas can – I don't know, possibly exploit there. Um, but what is it for the Kansas side of things that maybe, I don't know, best behooves them in this matchup? Yeah, you start with number one, which is if a team is good at offensive rebounding, it means they probably send an extra body to the glass. Send an extra body to the glass and you don't get the rebound, Kansas taking off the other direction. And we saw this against Baylor, uh, for example, at home for Kansas when KU was at home playing Baylor when Baylor did not get the offensive rebound. They were in trouble the other direction. And we know how deadly Kansas' transition game can be, especially with a a healthy Remy Martin. So I think that's um, one of the biggest keys. Because we know Kansas, they can go on these little spurts where they kind of play a team even, play a team even, but then they get a couple of those opportunities, and all of a sudden they get four or six switch points, and they can open up a lead on somebody when the rest of the game has sort of been steady pretty much with both teams kind of going back and forth. So um, that's number one thing for Kansas. You know, with this drop coverage, it, it makes me wonder, um, a guy like Ochai Abaji, uh, when you're doing that, it's kind of like the, the guard who is guarding that player kind of trails that play. So sometimes you can give up a lot of threes uh, in that particular uh, defense if those guys take them off the dribble. So we know Ochai's not played well, but if there's a least potential there, if Dave can set some good screens and Ochai can make the read correctly, that you can get some off-the-dribble threes from Ochai Abaji coming off the screen and – it was sort of interesting defense from Providence playing those two teams that they played because 
both South Dakota State and Richmond are known for shooting threes, and it's not like Providence really took those threes away in that regard. It's just those other teams didn't make them, <laughs> and especially like Richmond when you go one for 24 or whatever. I think that was the exact number, one for 24 in that particular game. I mean, that's, that's more good fortune for Providence than anything else. So I think that's another advantage. KU potentially can take advantage of if they want to play those threes off the dribble. I would especially do it with Ochai Abaji if that's there. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, Providence, when they play that defensive style, they do not turn you over. So it's a little bit like Creighton. I mean, if KU can get shot volume up and play to the offensive glass like they normally can, it's going to be hard for them to have an offensive uh, floor that's too low because you're just getting shots every time. You're going to get second chances. And like I said, you're, you should be able to get some threes at least off the dribble and pick and roll settings. So um, that, that's not too scary of the, from the defensive end. Like I said, offensively, um, or not too scared from the offense, but defensively, the worry is just a team that's offering three against you. But that's the worry against any team, even that team like Creighton that comes into a game 30% shooting from three and makes eight of the first 11. So um, that's always in the tournament. You're always 40 minutes away from a, a crazy outlier performance ending your season. But for Kansas, like I said, it's all going to start with that switching and having good communication and trying to make sure the Friars do not get open threes from the perimeter. Kansas has had their opponents anyway in in the last few tournaments have dealt with crazy outlier three shooting. Is there something specific about what they do or is it because I would, I mean, I guess I would, my instinct would say no, because if there was something specific about what they do, then you would see it a lot more during the regular season. And I would argue that they've just had weird luck since 2017 about teams getting freakishly hot from three. Um, but is there something they can do differently, or is it just you know you take what what you get and it's a forty game or forty minute game? Yeah, it's, it's tough because I think people in general, coaches, players, fans, want to act like hundred percent of the result is in your control. Uh, we all want to feel like we're in control of our own destinies, control of what happens in the NCAA tournament, control of a matchup, in control of what we can do. Um, we're not all in control. We're just not, you know, sometimes weird things happen. So I think for Bill Self, he would probably give you a little bit of a different answer. But, I mean, I've I tried to sort of answer this question online today. Uh, I think I've, I've pulled up the numbers since 2010 that there have been nine opponents in the NCAA tournament that have shot made at least 10 threes against Kansas and shot at least 40%. The next highest team on that list is North Carolina at seven. And again, sometimes some of this is, uh, is just the fact that KU makes a bunch of tournament games and plays in a bunch of them. But since the 2016-17 season, KU has the most as well from opponents, which is six. The next highest is actually West Virginia at four. So um, maybe you can make a case that West Virginia has gotten even unluckier than Kansas because they've had fewer games, but teams have bombed away from three uh, against them. But you know, I think it's mostly unlucky. I mean, some of this is scouting reports. Some of this is knowing who to get on and, and to guard that person and to, to do all those things that Bill Self wants you to do as part of the scouting report. But, again, like when USC, a team that doesn't make many threes, goes 11 for 18, there's not much you can do. And, and we've seen this in games for Kansas this year. Like K-State marched in the field house a couple months ago, um, about a month and a half ago, I guess. And the way KU was shooting that night, Nobody was beating Kansas. I mean, sorry, K-State. You showed up, and, and you did it for no reason because the Jayhawks were going to be unbeatable because they made their threes and made tough threes uh, along with some open ones, too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to sit here and say that Bill Self and his team are fully in control of their destiny on the defensive end. That's just not how it works, and that's why 
good offense in college basketball in general, as far as the studies goes, it beats good defense. Um, and that's just sort of how it works out. So you do your best. You defend how you think is the best way. You try to follow a scouting report, but sometimes the shot goes up and you have no control whether that thing goes through the net or bounces off the rim. And so I would say that Kansas probably has had mostly bad fortune when it comes to those numbers. You don't know what if it'll pop up again, but uh, I would say this, the Bill Self is probably due the next two games to have some good shooting uh, momentum defensively end up his way. Well, we'll see if they can get some good shooting reversion on, on the offensive end from Ochag Baji and what you mentioned with Providence, you know, maybe allowing KU to have a little more breathing room from three. Obviously, it's going to come down if he's hitting or not. He was just 10 of 28 last week and uh, now just 7 of 27 from his career uh, in the NCAA tournament from three. I I don't know if this is kind of the same answer of that it's just, hey, this is just kind of small sample size and this is just two games and, you know, you could just go back as soon as the Big 12 tournament and he shot uh, like 50% from the field in the Big 12 tournament. Um, but I don't know what to think of. Is there something to do with a mental side of it where in the bigger games you get more tight because we saw it in the Texas game, for instance, or if, again, that was just kind of an outlier. What do you make of Ochai's shooting struggles, I guess, last week, and is that at all concerning for KU this week? Yeah, no, I'm exactly with you, Derek. I'm not worried about Ochai Baji's shooting. Um, he's an elite shooter over the greater sample that's going to show itself out. I'm worried about Ochai Abaji when it comes to being tight and nervous and having the weight of the world on his shoulders because we saw him in that senior game against Texas, uh, senior night at Alfield House. It was different. You know, he just was pressing. And if anybody on this team is going to care too much, and I mean that in, in, I mean that in a complimentary term, Ochai Abaji cares too much. I mean, he's a local kid. He cares about his teammates. He came back. He's looked at as the leader. He's a Naismith finalist. He's won all the American awards. He knows people are going to talk about him being the guy that's going to lead Kansas potentially to the final four. So that's what I'm worried about with him. And I don't know how you fix it. You know, I, I don't, I, you can tell a guy to relax. You can tell him to loosen up. You can tell him to just think of it like it's any other game, but it's not, you know what I mean? It's not. So um, I'm not worried about his shooting. I'm not, I, I'm worried about his shooting in this sort of setting with this sort of pressure. And um, maybe it can, can even still get to the final four without him uh, shooting very well or, or not being the same Ochai that we saw from the last couple months of the season. Uh, that's definitely possible with the path that they're potentially going to have to get to New Orleans, but it sure looks a whole lot different when he's confident shooting, making them, and giving KU that offensive boost that he's been able to for most of the season. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if he can calm down a little bit and be able to um, to help Kansas offensively in the ways that he has so often this year. But, yeah, I am a little bit concerned because of the stakes that are involved. And if anybody is going to put that pressure upon himself, it's going to be Ochai Abaji because he understands what this means when it comes to not only his team and his teammates and his own legacy, but uh, just Kansas fans in general. And, uh, again, I'm saying that as a compliment, not as a detriment. He cares so much about this team and about this program that uh, putting that weight on his shoulders is something I think is pretty natural. If Kansas is to advance over Providence, have you gotten an early read on uh, a potential Elite Eight matchup with how that could fare for KU with Iowa State and Miami? And, and uh, I don't know if you'd buy into this, but obviously – kind of going back into the idea of, you know, playing tight. Um, we've seen that a lot for KU just in general in Elite Eights. I can't help but wonder if playing Iowa State would help that because, you know, as, as much as there's been made as well about Bill Self having the better record on day one than, than the second game of the week in the tournament, I mean, who cares about the shorter prep? You've played them twice already. 
Yeah, I mean, you can talk yourself in lots of different directions here. Yeah. You know, you can you can talk about Miami having a, a stretch five, potentially give KU problems there. We've seen that happen with Oklahoma and also with Creighton, that they can get Dave McCormick troubles. And KU doesn't have a perfect answer to go to that, other than, you know, Zach Clemens, who hasn't played that much this year, even though he did step up in that Oklahoma game. You could talk yourself into Iowa State um, not wanting to play them because they have familiarity, and obviously they pushed Kansas to the brink. And, um, you know, uh, that game in Chicago is going to have a crud load of uh, Iowa State fans uh, <laughs> in the United Center if that game happens. So, I mean, I, I think you can go either way, but I kind of go back to what I, I always default to, which is the Vegas line. What's that going to be? And Keeley got a 10-point favor in that game either way. They're able to make it past Providence. So, Kane's tougher games against Providence, and that game is – about as easy as any one seed has here at this point, uh, and it's all you can ask for. So, I mean, the bottom line here is um, it doesn't mean Kansas can't lose, and obviously they've been upset in the past, and crazy things happen in college basketball in 40-minute samples, but uh, the bottom line with it is just that whether they get Iowa State or Miami, that's a really, 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 really favorable draw to try to get to the Final Four. So I think you can argue either way, but I think either way it's going to be you about a 10-point favorite, and that's about all that Bill Self can ask for when trying to make the New Orleans. All right, we don't have a kiss, Mary kill for you with the tournament going on and uh, rolling right now, although Providence was a kill earlier. Kansas was a Mary, so we're going to have some talking next week if, if Providence wins that game. But uh, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, Jesse, one last thing. What was the last reason you used tape? The last reason I used tape? Oh, my. Um, you know, I think I found it because my daughter likes to do art projects um, around the house, so get some scotch tape. She tapes some stuff together, makes creations, and uh, yeah, she's way more creative than I am, and that's definitely a good thing. All right, there we go. Getting into the crafting world with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. You can follow along. Uh, there will be a quick scout, I'm sure, out in the next, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, something like that, for the KU Providence game. Always worth the read, always worth the subscription with Jesse Newell. Jesse, appreciate the time as always, man. All right, thanks, guys. All right, that's Jesse Newell. Check out his work, Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. With Adam Rivetta, I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, and KLWN.com. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk coming up in about 20 minutes. Aaron Grant, who is the captain of the Kansas Quidditch Club, will join us. That brought to you by Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence. We're also going to be joined by Dan Bonner, who will be the color analyst, one of the two. It'll be him and Reggie Miller on the call of the game on TBS. Of course, you can hear it here as well on KLWN on Friday with KU taking on Providence pregame 4.30, tip-off at 6.29. But right now on a Wednesday at 4 o'clock, it's time for another edition of Around the World uh, with Adam. All right, we're going to start off in Clanton, Alabama. This from hmm. the Associated Press. An Alabama man called a wrecker service asking to have a 70-ton crane pulled out of the woods. Why? How did it get there? His cousin. Hey! I don't know. That didn't even make sense. Uh, he uh, allegedly stole it. <laughs> he stole... So, 
He stole a crane. Allegedly. 70 ton crane pulled out of the woods, and he's now charged with stealing the crane, sheriff's officials said. The owner of a towing service contacted the... contacted the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that county, so I'll just say the local sheriff's office on Monday, saying that the man had called claiming someone gave him the crane, and he wanted it to remove so he could sell it for scrap, the agency said in a statement. The wrecker service owner recalled moving the same crane a few years before and contacted its owner who denied having given it away. This guy's stealing cranes and just saying, no, no, it was a gift. Now come move it for me. So where... How do you steal a crane? How do you steal a crane? The towing operator then called law enforcement. The man who wanted the crane moved fled before officers arrived. Decent sign that he's guilty. This is what I don't understand. If you stole a crane, clearly you had equipment to move the crane. Apparently he left in the crane. Do you think he, he left? No, he, he, he did dro- not. It says he, he fled before officers arrived, driving the rig into a oh ditch where it became gosh. stuck. So not only did he steal the train, he tried to crane, tried to run away in it. And now they're going to need a crane to get the crane out. The 26-year-old Clanton man was arrested Tuesday on a probation violation and first-degree theft charges. Court records did not include the name of a defense attorney. Who could speak on his behalf? Quote, we have worked a lot of theft cases over the years, but this one definitely takes first place in the heavyweight category. Sheriff John Searin's office said in a statement thanking the wrecker service. So he steals a crane, allegedly, says, hey, this was a gift from, you know, my buddy. Mm -hmm. I need, I don't have any use for it. I want to sell this gift of a crane for scrap. Do you have a crane on your wedding register? I think I'm. I just I'm a terrible yeah, gift giver. Yeah, nobody got it for us. So anytime I'm part of a wedding, and Derek was uh, kind enough to have me as a groomsman in his wedding, which I was very honored to be. But as he will tell you, I'm not creative with gift giving at weddings. You get a card, and you get a fifty dollar Visa gift <laughs> card from me when I, whether I'm a guest at your wedding or whether I'm I'm part of it. Um, unless of course it's a destination wedding, in which case me getting my ass there is your gift. Um, but I, uh, so you did, you registered for a crane. Yeah. Nobody got nobody it, got it for you. I don't know why I was pretty disappointed. Well, this guy apparently has been given a gift of a crane twice and they say, no, you've stolen those, sir. We'll see again. That's like, silly business. You stole that. If he stole it, how did he get it there? So that means- well, I, I want to know uh, the, the picture of it. Uh, I, if I can describe it, it's, um, it looks like what essentially amounts to a large, uh, a large bit of uh, like a big truck with a crane on the back of it. So it's a drivable piece of machinery, if that makes sense. It, okay, that, okay. So that's how he did it. I was wondering if he stole something else to move so the crane, steal the and crane, then put that. No, it looks back. like the crane is a mobile crane. Mm. I guess I was going to ask what he planned to do on with the crane. He was going to sell it for All scrap. All sorts of things. Make a treehouse out of it. Oh, yeah, good call. You could make a sweet treehouse with that. But, yeah, you could probably sell a lot of the material. Would you be mad? Like, you'd be like, all right, daddy's going to the joint for a few years, (laughs) but he's going because he stole a crane, and look at this treehouse he built you. Like, that would lessen the blow a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, because you can't take away the treehouse. You can take back the the crane, but whatever you do with it. I would agree. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, Similar story to what we just had last week. Derek, guess what was found on a farm in Iowa? A crane. (laughs) No. Think last week and some fishermen in Rhode Island. Mm. 
I have no idea. From the UPI, construction work on a property owned by an Iowa college resulted in an unusual discovery. A woolly mammoth's tooth believed to really? have lived more than 20,000 years ago. Okay. This is the second, All this is the second week in a row we've had a mammoth tooth getting randomly found. Huh. Last was a group of fishermen in uh, off the coast of Rhode Island. Now it's in Iowa. Doubt it was the same mammoth. Uh, you never know. Could have traveled been. a long way. Could have lost one tooth and then just kept going. Are teeth supposed to, like, I guess they're bones. That's so. the thing. Would, yeah, I mean, yeah, they would be preserved as any, any other bones would. Um, How do they know it's a woolly mammoth tooth, though? Like, that's what I don't understand. I don't know. There's some pretty smart people out there. Uh, Justin Blawett of DGR Engineering said he was observing work on a lift station project for the city of Sheldon on a property owned by Northwest Iowa Community College when he spotted a massive tooth exposed by excavation. Blawett, who has uh, long been interested in fossils, I think he lied on that one. My dad feels like, oh, I know a ton about fossils. I know I've been studying fossils for years in my spare time. Mm-hmm. Uh, has been said he's been interested in fossils. Suspected the object was a woolly mammoth tooth, and his identification was confirmed by Tiffany Adrian, a paleontology uh, a paleontology repository instructor huh. mm. at the University of Iowa. While discovery of a mammoth remains not uncommon in Iowa, once the bones and teeth are out in the open, they can fall apart and disappear quickly. Because they're not completely fossilized, Adrian said in a DGR Engineering news release. This was a lucky find. Adrian said the tooth has likely been underground since the last glacial maximum, which is believed to have happened over 20,000 years ago. Derek, when was your last glacial maximum? Mine was Uh, a couple months ago. Last week for me. Oh, good. Glad you got it over with. Uh, DGR, uh, DGR Engineering said Adrian gave officials instructions for properly preserving the waterlogged tooth as allowing it to dry out too quickly could cause it to disintegrate. Um, included in the instructions were 85 gallons of crest. Interesting. That's a lie. I added that. Oh, I was like, wait, what? Chris Widja, head curator at East Tennessee State University, said the 11-point-pound tooth belonged to an adult mammoth. This is an upper third molar, probably a right, Widja said, of course. All right, this guy's just fly. This guy, you don't know that. <laughs> He's the head curator at East Tennessee State University, Derek. Don't question him. Based on the degree of wear, this animal was probably in its early 30s when it, when it died. I'm in my early 30s. Uh-oh. Are you a woolly mammoth? I don't know. They're going to find me in 20,000 years going, we've uncovered the tooth of a fat radio host. In no, Lawrence, if, Kansas. What if our? But that's the thing. Like we don't actually know, like for sure. What if in like you know whatever I, thousands of years you're digging us up? You're digging us up, and, and we're gonna like, all be. Dressed. Oh my gosh, this was a. If it's one thing I've learned from going to funerals, it's that we're all gonna be dressed real nice. Yeah, but like you well, look your best. The clothes in that will be coffin. disintegrated, I'm sure, but the bones will still be there. And what if they think that like, oh, these were like super powered humans or something? I don't know. Like they think that we're like. I don't know if it's anything like we are. They're going to think, God, those guys Because you don't actually know what's on the outside of them is what I'm saying. Like, for all we know, it wasn't a woolly mammoth. It was a mammoth covered in tar. Just pick your substance. Yeah, yeah, like a feathered mammoth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good good point. Um, Probably considering that, you know, I don't think they've ever known one to exist. I... I saw a thing in the seventh grade that they're trying to use some uh, mammoth DNA combined with elephants to create a woolly mammoth. 
Hmm. Should follow up on that. I would like that. I uh, I remember when they were talking about like they could, you know, build dinosaurs, and then the whole idea was like, why would you do this? We have a bunch of movies devoted to reason not to at Jurassic Park. Why can't you just create the, you know, dinosaurs and animals that like weren't T-Rexes that would want to kill everything? Like create a woolly mammoth, create a, uh, you know, brontosaurus. I would argue um, the methane that would come out of a brontosaurus would really speed things up in terms of climate change. Mm. We don't want that. Well... I don't but know. I bet genetically it, you make a, a it, good brontosaurus. If you think if you think of it in terms of food, that's a lot of steak. Yeah, imagine you that. You ever we seen solve, the size of the brontosaurus steaks right. they had on the Flintstones? We solve all of our food troubles, you know, the the millions of people who are hungry worldwide. We fix it by creating dinosaurs just to slaughter them. Yeah, that stake on the on the side of Fred <laughs> Flintstone's car, Derek, was so big it tilted the car. And they had like an SUV. Something to think uh-huh. about. All right, we're moving on. The UPI in Britain. A British restaurant is trying to find the owner of an unusual piece of lost and found property. What they find left behind in this restaurant? Dignity because British food sucks. Goodness. No, the Barclay Pizza and Prosecco were located in Royton, Oldham, England. Oldham, mm. Old Ham, Oldham, England. Anyway, said workers were cleaning in the early morning hours Sunday when they found a full set of teeth on the floor in the bar area of the eatery. Did you get these stories from, like, Dental Magazine? Nope, uh, all from the UPI and the Associated Press. I think the next one comes from the Mirror, but this is the UPI. People just leaving teeth, teeth around. And this guy, I mean, a mammoth, you can't, the mammoth's probably dead. It couldn't yeah. help that it left he his tooth yeah. there. Um, this is, well, they did and say. By teeth, do you mean like dentures? They said a full set of dentures, yes. Emma Whelan, owner of the establishment, posted a photo to the business's Facebook page showing a bag of uh, that employees labeled teeth. Saturday, 19th of March, 2022. We get a lot of things left behind after a night at the Barkley. Uh, we've had house keys, phones, even a single shoe. But, mm. this, but this is a new one, the Post said. Whelan said the teeth were found at the end of a particularly busy night. Like, what do you do? You wake up without your teeth. They're not in the glass of the effort where you normally leave mm-hmm. them. You got to just, like, you're, you do it like if you lost your keys. You're just retracing your steps. Where was I last night? Like, oh, no. Did I, did I take them out at the bar to do that one parlor trick again? Yeah. It was a busy night last night. We had a party upstairs, and it was busy downstairs as well. We didn't find the teeth until the end of the night, she told the Manchester Evening News. Our supervisor, Cameron, found them. They were on the floor. They were on the floor. It's a full set of teeth. I particularly wanted to post it because someone is definitely missing them. You think? (laughs) This almost sounds like a prank to me. It's like, what's the weirdest thing I could leave? Freak out all the... We're going to the Barkley. We're going to the Barkley tonight. I got... Look... Yeah, I got my grandmother's got my dentures. Grandpa's dentures. We're gonna leave them there. We're gonna freak them all out. <laughs> and the next day, you feel bad. Oh, sorry, you can't eat anything besides mush bananas, Grandma. <laughs> I thought at the time it was pretty funny. I'll go back and pick them up for you. You know what? I'll spring for a whole new set. All right. Uh, next, uh, also in uh, England, Paul Elkham, twenty-nine years old. Uh tried to batter a man using what weapon? Teeth. No. Seagull. Hmm. Picked up Tooth. a picked up a live seagull, threw it at the stranger before he launched into a vicious <laughs> attack. 
Who launched into the vicious attack? The seagull? No, uh, Paul. Oh, Paul. Paul used the seagull as a weapon and then decided to just use his hands and feet That's as weapons. Creative. Kicking and punching him. The assault was so violent that he left the victim with a broken jaw, Plymouth Crown Court was told. He was on his way home following a two-day drink and drugs bender. Yup. That checks out. When he came across the seagull, which was lying on the Does road, he just injured. think it's a seagull because he was drugged up? No, I don't know what he thought it was, but it was a seagull. Reality dictates that it was a seagull. He then started showing it to people in a nearby shop before throwing it at his victim. Elkham then beat him with his fists, feet, and a belt. As a result of the random attack, he was jailed for over a year and was given another two weeks for failing to show up for his trial. Oh. So he picks up this seagull, goes, check this out. Probably someone was like, that's stupid. Put that down. What? Flap! <laughs> Where do you think he picked it up by? Side of the road, looks like. No, no, no. I mean, like, what body oh, part what of body the seagull? Part? Because, good... like, the legs are so flimsy. If you picked it up by the legs, it's just flopping around there. Can't pick it up. I don't know. You pick it up by the beak so it doesn't peck you? Dude, I'd be afraid to pick up a seagull. I, I do not love it when birds get too close to me. I've seen the movie Birds. Yeah. We know how that ends. Oh, dude, did I tell you what happened during uh, Thursday? Uh-oh. Last what? Thursday, first day of the tournament, we're sitting there. Um, my dad, we're upstairs. I hear from my dad from the basement going, holy blank, look outside. And my first thought, I don't know why I thought this, but my first thought was like, oh, there's a bear outside. And I look. Oh, why would there be I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. My mind goes weird places. <laughs> Is, it, um, Is there a T-Rex? I've, I've never. Let, let me. Okay. So it said that. Um, what did it say about Paul? Uh, a two-day drink and drugs bender. I've never beaten anybody with a seagull. <laughs> but I've had a Paul Elkham type weekend. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, sometimes my mind thinks, oh, there must be a bear outside. I look. There's no bear. And I look up. Derek. There were like a hundred vultures above our house. Just the, our house and the next. That's ominous. And the next then you're four, like, did somebody next die? Four house. I was like, I thought, man, an elephant must have died near here. Dude, there were so many vultures just up and the, probably the our house and two or three houses to either side of it. Dozens, dozens of vultures just flying above our house. It was the scariest thing I've ever seen. No, I didn't pick up a seagull or pick up a vulture to beat the hell out of somebody with That'd it. That'd be hard to pick but, up. Yeah, but then uh, the vultures just continued on north. I don't know what they're after, man. One of the scariest things I've ever seen. Not as scary as a crazy man coming after me with a seagull. I would imagine that would be scarier, but just on the topic of being afraid I don't know. Of if I was, like, laying down outside and I saw that, I'd be like, do they know something I don't? That's my thought. Like, when you see a bunch of birds flying in, like, a certain direction— Go in the same direction right. as them because they're clearly running away, flying away from something that could hurt you. Yeah, it's like the happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad movie, but you know that'd be very scary. Yep. All right, is that it? That's all of them. Yeah, we got the man steals the crane, another mammoth tooth found in Iowa, uh, some teeth found at a restaurant that were apparently human, not mammoth, and a guy beating the hell out of some dude with a seagull. All right, traditional news stories, as you can tell. That is Around the World with Adam Javetta. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, we're going to be joined for our continuing on KU Club interviews. Brought to you by Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence. Aaron Grant of the Kansas Quidditch Club joins us on the other side. This is RCST.
Our KU Club interviews brought to you by Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence continues on with the Kansas Quidditch team. We're joined by Aaron Grant. Aaron, what uh, year in school are you at KU? Hey, Derek. Uh, I am a junior at KU right now. Okay, so a junior at KU. Um, I'm, I'm sure you get this question a lot when, you know, maybe you tell somebody, that, yeah, I'm on the Quidditch team. Like, what are the rules of the game? How does this all work for, for Quidditch? Yeah, um, it's definitely the most unique sport that I've ever played. Uh, there's like, there's three different balls, or two two balls of different kinds and four total. Um, so there's a quaffle, uh, which is passed around by the chasers and a keeper. So there's three chasers on each team and a keeper. Um, and they all use the quaffle, which is a deflated volleyball. Um, and they throw it around between e- between each other, uh, kind of like in a simulated way, like a basketball offense. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the best way I would describe it. Um so that's four players, and then your other two players on your team are your beaters. And your beaters, uh, there's three bludgers on the field, which are dodgeballs. Um, so your beaters will f- like fight for those dodgeballs, so uh, if you throw them at each other, you can get, e- get the other players on the other team out. Um, and if you get hit with the dodgeball, you have to go to your own hoops and tag back in. Uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of like a mix between dodgeball mm-hmm. and rugby. Um, now, are you guys, is, how, how much physicality is there in in all of this? Uh, there's I, there's plenty of physicality. Mm-hmm. Um, any anything from below the shoulders to above the knees is free game, um, as long as you're leading with your torso when you tackle. Um, there, there's there's some rules on like tackling, like there's no tackling from behind. But this is also a, like a full contact sport played with no pads, so it's it's pretty intense. I've definitely um, seen a number of concussions in my day. Um, <laughs> Like busted lips, like just like torn up elbows on the turf, stuff like that. So, what position do you play? Okay. Uh, so, I'm the chaser captain. So, okay. I'm I'm the one who does all the tackling, uh, which is pretty sweet. Uh, I kind of can get to play football a little bit in that way. As you say, do you have a background playing football or anything uh, in high school? I played in middle school. I've mm-hmm. always been a big fan. Um, I definitely wasn't big enough or like good enough to play in high school, but uh, it's like being like physical and like showing aggression like that in a sport is something i kind of missed mm-hmm. um and it's it's a good way to to do that it's a good medium um there's a, there's a lot of good like athletes who are like pretty bulky or fast so and like being able to like tackle somebody in the open field is i don't know it, it's good for quidditch <laughs> it's a, it's a good it's a good uh, like testament to the skill of the game so the quaffle which is the deflated volleyball is that the ball that you have to throw through the there's the like kind of hula hoop standing on the the rings yeah. is that how you score the points yeah yeah so there's three hoops of uh they're all of different sizes there's uh baby hoop which is the smallest hoop that's probably like i don't know like four feet tall um the tallest hoop in the middle it's probably like uh like seven or eight feet tall and then there's a middle hoop um which is probably like in, just in between those um but yeah, so they're all worth the same. If you score, it's ten points. Um, yeah. So if it, I know, in I, I don't know how much you know the game kind of takes place from where the, it originated. Harry Potter, kind of the, the whole uh, vibe there. It, in Harry Potter, there's what the snitch I think it's called, which is yeah. you know, is is there anything equivalent to that where if you yes. catch it, you just win? Uh, so is it, it just worth extra if you points? Catch, yes, if you catch it, you get thirty five points, okay. which is three and a half goals which is pretty significant um so how it works is there you'll play 20 minutes uh with without a snitch uh, so it'll just be um you just play like one 20 minute half and at the end of those 20 minutes uh the snitch will come on to the field uh which is like a third party player okay. wearing a pair of snitch shorts 
Um, so which is just somebody who's really fast. Uh, no, not even oh. not even that. Um, that could, there's like all kinds of snitches. There's like snitches who are really fast and agile. There's snitches who are bulky and uh, like bigger and like harder to throw around. Because when you're when you're seeking, I also uh, play seeker. Um, you're going after the snitch, and it's kind of like a wrestling match. Because um, the snitch is uh, like a tennis ball kind of tied in a sock that hangs from the <laughs> okay. person's tailbone. Yeah, this is like it's kind of a silly thing, but it's it's pretty fun because it's really just like wrestling. Um, so your goal as the seeker, and there's a seeker from each team usually going at the snitch at the same time. Um, so the goal is to catch the snitch for your team, get 35 points. That'll put you uh, closer to victory. Um, so after 20 minutes, you have to score 70 points from uh, whichever team had the highest score. So there will be a set score of plus 70 after 20 minutes, and whichever team reaches that score first is the winner. Um, so catching the snitch is a huge deal. It's really hard to win if you don't catch the snitch. We had some games. Uh, earlier this month where we uh, didn't catch the snitch and actually came back and won uh, which was a pretty cool thing pretty uh, good at, like testament of resilience for our team um, but yeah that's that's when I'd say like the sports like really starts getting crazy and really starts getting kind of abstract like I don't know I don't f- I don't really feel like many other sports have that like third party uh, like aspect where someone will just like come onto the field and uh, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things going on at the same time. So it's really fun to watch and be a part of. I think uh, you guys estimate your club started in, in 2010. I mean, how many how many teams are there? How many schools are doing this? What are some of the, the schools you guys are playing against? Yeah. Um, so there has kind of been a big change in the landscape uh, since after COVID. Um, but when I started in 2019, 2020, my freshman year, uh, there are about like 95 college teams that played uh, across Division One and Division Two. Um, we most commonly play uh, Creighton and Mizzou. The Creighton's in Omaha, Mizzou's in Columbia, uh, and we're the only team in Kansas right now. Wichita State uh, kind of has an off and on team. Um, kind of depends on uh, like their enrollment, and I'm I'm not exactly sure what their situation is, but uh, we're the only team in Kansas, and we most often play Creighton and Mizzou. Um, We'll often go to like the Great Lakes region, like Indiana, Ohio, um, states like that, uh, Iowa, to go play other teams. And is there like a national tournament, or so, it, are there standings? Is it just exhibition games? How does this all work? Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's standings, and there's a national tournament, um, and there's regionals for uh, each region. So uh, on the weekend of October 30th, the Halloween of this last year, we had regionals in Omaha. Uh, we we placed third. Um, and which means we got a bid to nationals in Salt Lake City, which is next month. Um, so that secured our bid, and we'll play, or we'll get set into like a pool of maybe like four or five other teams at nationals, and I think there will be at least forty teams at nationals from across the country. Um, so I, th- I believe how it works is everybody gets like set into groups, and then based on how well you do in your group, you get placed into a bracket after that. So, I mean, you're talking about, you said back in October, now you got this uh, next month. This is a long season, yes. right? Yes, this is a like a year-round thing. This mm-hmm. is a, it takes a level of commitment, I would say. Um, but it's it's still really fun. It's uh, We have about like three or four tournaments per semester. Um, we had three last semester, and so far we've just had one. Um, it's a little bit harder to uh, kind of organize things during the winter just because... Uh, like access to like indoor fields is usually not um, always there, uh, so it's a little harder to play other schools during the winter. Um, but yeah, this is a year-round sport. We start in, in September. Um, 
go all the way through April. So. What's been your favorite memory so far of this season? Oh gosh, um, probably our our first tournament in uh, it was at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, like we just everybody got out of class on Friday. Like we drive ourselves. Like so we took like three or four different cars. Um, we drove nine hours to to Muncie. Um, so I think I think my car got there at like midnight. Uh, the last car got there at like two thirty, and then we got to wake up at eight a.m. and play Mizzou first first game. Uh, Mizzou's a good squad. Uh, that was the only game we lost that day. We uh, lost the first game against Mizzou, and then we beat Bowling Green, beat Michigan State, beat uh, Columbia Chicago, and then beat Mizzou again in the finals uh, to win that tournament. And that w- that was a really special memory because that was the, uh, the the first tournament this year, like the first tournament we won since I've been a captain. Um, I just like remember we were all just like so tired and so dead, like we were running on such little sleep and playing playing five games of uh, like a contact sport like Quidditch, really like all in one day. That's that's kind of a lot. So I was really proud of us that day, and that was probably been my favorite memory this year. What's the process like for obviously you guys are in season now, but for joining the team or their tryouts? When does that all occur? Yeah, so it's. Uh, it's really not like that set in stone. Like any any KU student can join, um, undergrad, graduate, as long as you're old at KU, you can join. Um, it's like typically like obviously the beginning of the season is the best time to join, um, just because if you join any later, you'll kind of get thrown in the middle of it. But the best way to learn the game is just by getting in there and playing, anyways. Um, but yeah, like we recruit at the very beginning of the year. Um, like we'll go to the rec or we'll go to the union. Uh, like stu- student union and the university will just like host events where we can like set up a booth. Uh, like we've gone to like on campus, like Jayhawk Boulevard. We'll go in front of Wesco and set up a booth. Um, and, like we'll bring the hoops, like bring some balls, like kind of harass people with flyers, like try to try to get them to <laughs> uh, like see us out. Um, but yeah, so like anybody can join at any time. Um, we have we have practices at uh, Shank Sports Complex and uh, Central Turf Fields on campus. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter uh, at like Kansas Quidditch, and there's plenty of information there. Um, yeah, so it's it's open to all KU students. I would like if you have an athletic background uh, or like miss playing football or miss playing basketball. I would I would definitely encourage. It's a co-ed sport. Men and women uh, and those who uh, are non non-binary as well can all join so is that awkward at all for you when you have to go tackle like a, a female running around somewhere it, it definitely was at first um i would say the first few months it was like a little different because i had not really like tackled right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> t- uh, tackled people that weren't men um so so that part was funny but now it's like i've just accepted it as like part of the game and i definitely tried to like not hurt anybody um <laughs> So, so that part's funny, uh, but yeah, it, it takes some getting used to. But it's, uh, I don't know, every everybody's like really, really competitive out there. So it's, it's, uh, it's an in- intense but really fun game. And with all the travel you guys mentioned, driving certain places, going to national stuff like that, I'm sure there's a cost associated with it. I don't know if you guys are paying out of pocket or if you guys fundraise uh, with all that. But yeah. is there certain ways that that people can kind of support your guys' program to help you out with that stuff? Uh, yeah. So. Like fundraiser wise, uh, we kind of did the kind of did a combo. Like we'll help out the university. We'll like clean Allen Fieldhouse after like a men's game and a women's game. Like uh, we cleaned Allen Fieldhouse after a men's game this year, and that takes there's about like 25 of us there. And 
takes a number of hours. <laughs> it takes like six or seven hours. Uh, it's it's a big place, but uh, like we'll do that um, to get uh, like money from the university so we can like go to places and like get a flight to nationals and stuff like that. Um, we uh, we're gonna start a fundraiser soon on Facebook, uh, I think, um, where we can like anyone can donate to the team. Uh, so we can raise money to like get those flights to nationals. Just uh, I don't know. We we all put in like a lot of work throughout the year, and it's a it's a long season. And uh, there there hasn't been a national since 2019, since the 2020 and 2021 uh, USQ Cups were both canceled because of COVID. Um, so it's like it's like the biggest event in three years for Quidditch. So uh, like being being able to get there and like perf- like perform and compete against other teams like will be huge. Uh, so, yeah, I would say check out our social medias um, for, like, ways to help out the team. All right, there you go. Be on the lookout for that. He is Aaron Grant, captain of the Kansas Quidditch team, junior at KU. Aaron, appreciate you stopping by today. Yeah, hey, thanks, Derek. Appreciate it, man. All right, that's Aaron Grant with our KU club interviews brought to you by Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence. Great spot to hang out, hang out with some of your club team members or just, you know, meet some new people. Have a great bite to eat, have a great drink, watch the game, just relax, do whatever you want. Johnny's Tavern in North Lawrence. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Five o'clock hour joined now by Dan Bonner. We had Kevin Harlan on the show and talked to Kevin. He's going to be on the call of the game on TBS along with Dan Bonner and Reggie Miller for the TV broadcast side of things. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Um, ahead of this game on Friday, Kansas taking on Providence. Uh, what's the biggest key for you as, as you're getting prepped, getting ready for this game between these two teams? What do you view as, I guess, the biggest storyline, the biggest key for, for either of these teams headed into this one? You know, that's, that's a really good question, and I say it's a really good question because Providence, to my mind, is a hard team to figure out. They don't really have a star player. They don't really do anything particularly great. Uh, you know, they do a nice job uh, limiting their opponents in field goal percentage, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not like spectacular, not like what Iowa State does, for example. So this is a Providence team that they've got so many different weapons that can hurt you that you just don't know which one of those might emerge. So uh, I think that Kansas, they're easier to figure out. And <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be a fascinating matchup because uh, Providence is just a really interesting team to me. Yeah, from, from kind of your perspective of, of looking on along the story of, of Kansas and how the season has gone and how Remy Martin's emerging and, and everything for the Jayhawks, what's kind of your your uh, 90-foot view of the Jayhawks right now? You know, it's funny. Uh, I didn't realize until I started looking into Kansas that they are uh, below average. Uh, the national average uh, for teams, given the percentage of your points that you score from three, is 31.6%. And Kansas is like 27.6%. And that's you know, that, that doesn't seem like much, but those percentages actually are pretty significant. So the Jayhawks are not a team that is based on three-point shooting, but if you look at their numbers, 
they score almost 48% of their points in the paint. And that's not, that doesn't mean they're, I'm not talking about power moves by McCormick uh, and Lightfoot and people like that. I'm talking about drives to the basket, transition, power moves, those kind of things. And when you add in Kansas free throws, they score almost 65% of their points either in the paint or from the free throw line. And I found that to actually be a little bit surprising. Uh, you know, Kansas, they move the ball very well. They get good shot opportunities. They are very efficient offensively. Uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons why is they do so much of their scoring, either when nobody's guarding them at the free throw line or they get into the lane. I, I just think that's a fascinating fact for me about the Kansas team. Yeah, different than some of the previous iterations over the past handful of years with Devontae Graham and Frank Mason, all these guys launching up threes. Um, uh, you mentioned the Friars, tough to figure out this season. I think they've almost been one of the uh, most polarizing teams, I think, to talk about in the country because of the fact that, you know, they, they did win a lot of games and they won a lot of close games. Their record in close games was pretty remarkable this season, and um, that has kind of led to a rift between the crowd who says, you know what, but the most important thing you're doing is you're winning these games and that's all that should matter. And the rift of the crowd that says, well, yeah, I mean, it matters a little, but, um, they're winning these close games and maybe they're getting a little bit lucky by, you know, not having close games be more 50, 50, like we think they are. Um, how much do you kind of view or, or value what Providence has done in terms of, like, is there a skill in, in what they've done in winning all these close games, or is there a bit of luck here? Well, I think they're, that they're – consider the fact that Providence is a veteran team. They are guys who know how to win. And so I would say that luck is a minor factor, although I will remind you that Napoleon thought the most important aspect that one of his commanders could have was luck. So there's something to be said. There's something to be said for luck. Uh, but I don't, I don't think Providence is a lucky team. I think they're a tough, gritty bunch. And, you know, they've got, they've got four guys on the team with 20 or more blocks. They've got four guys on the team who have made more than 33-point shots. You know, Kansas has two in that category. So they're just they're a tough, gritty bunch that they're the, the whole is certainly greater than the sum of the parts. And so I don't really think luck has anything to do with it. The most important thing that you have to do in a basketball game is score more more points than your opponent. So, uh, you know, all these numbers and everything, all the metrics that we use, Nolan Richardson once told me that there's only one stat in a basketball game that means anything and that stat is the score. And I've always believed that Nolan was 100% right about that. I think a lot of uh, fans here uh, getting ready for this game, you know, obviously, if you had to choose, you'd rather the bracket break open for the team you're rooting for or whatever than the alternative, like in the case of Gonzaga in the West, where you have one, two, three, and four all alive there. But at the same point in time, I think there's a lot of trepidation here because of what happened for KU in 2011. KU in 2011 with the Morris Twins plays a 12-seed Richmond in the Sweet 16. Then they're facing off with an 11-seed VCU in the Elite Eight. The bracket had broken open, and had they beaten VCU, they would have played an 8-seed Butler in the Final Four. I mean, we're talking KU would have been by far the, the favorite to win the title at that point, and they lost to VCU. And I think a lot of fans almost feel a little spurned by that, and they're almost 
fearful of uh, a similar situation here in which the bracket hasn't totally broken open. You're playing a four seed in the Sweet 16, but on the other end of the bracket, it has with a 10 seed and 11 seed still there. And I, I think certain people, like I said, there's a bit of trepidation for getting your hopes up and not being able to capitalize. I guess this is less of a question, more of a statement, but I, at this point, would it feel like it would be a disappointment for KU should they not make it out of the Midwest? Now, now let's let's get straight about something here that given the Kansas basketball history, given the Kansas basketball tradition, given the fact that if Kansas wins this game against Providence, they'll take over the top spot in all-time wins over, from Kentucky. So I would say that if Kansas loses a game in the NCAA tournament, by definition, that's a disappointment. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, before everybody gets ahead of themselves, uh, the bracket hasn't broken open for Kansas yet. That where they are at this point in the bracket as the number one seed, the team that, uh, you know, if everything goes according to plan, that they're supposed to play at this point is the number four seed, and that's what they're doing. Uh, and so I think that in, you know, the old. Uh, you know, Crash Davis, Nuke Lelouch thing, just take it one game at a time. That applies in this NCAA tournament. You cannot afford to look ahead because if you look ahead, the next time you look, you'll be watching on television. Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, it'd be bad if they were looking ahead, but, you know, I don't I don't have anything in the game, so I'm going to look ahead with you right here. You also are going to be on the call for the uh, Iowa State-Miami game as well. Let's say Kansas does find a way to get by Providence, however that looks. Um, do you view uh, this second matchup with Iowa State and Miami? Like, what intrigues you about this matchup and and how either of those teams could potentially match up with Kansas in the Elite Eight game? Well, let's start with Iowa State. First of all, they are an unbelievable defensive team, and Kansas has already beaten them twice. Uh, so I think that Kansas would look very favorably upon a matchup with Iowa State. I'm not I'm not one of these guys who believes it's hard to beat a team three times in the same season. You know, you've already beaten them twice. You know you can beat them. And it's not like you're going to overlook them if you're playing in the Elite Eight. So uh, I think that as far as Kansas is concerned, that a matchup against Iowa State would be right in their wheelhouse. I think that if Miami can get past Iowa State, and I think Miami presents a much more intriguing matchup if Kansas can get by Providence, because everybody says this is an event where veteran quality guards dominate and veteran quality guards, that defines the Hurricanes of Miami. Uh, I think they're a better team than people give them credit for. And I think that Kansas, would, that there would be more question marks in my mind for Kansas about playing Miami than there would be about playing Iowa State. And obviously you'd have the storyline there of some familiar faces. McGusty played at Oklahoma and obviously Charlie Moore playing at Kansas, getting to go up against them. Um, you, you've gotten to do so many great NCAA tournament games, whether it's been this year or in years past or whatnot. I'm just generally curious. Do you have a favorite broadcast or, or game that you've been able to be a part of? Well, as far as, you know, the, the, the tournament, I've also had the privilege of working in the Division II tournament, and uh, I always tell people that my favorite NCAA tournament game of all time was a championship game in D2, uh, where little Barton College from Wilson, North Carolina, down by 10 points with 45 set by, excuse me, 9 I points. I remember this one. 
with 45 seconds left to go in the game against an undefeated with Monona State team, had one kid, a guy named Anthony Atkinson, scored 10 points in 45 seconds, and they won the game on a layup at the buzzer. Uh, and I and Eagle and I did that game together. We've always laughed with one another that if that ever happened in a Division One championship game, people would say that that was the game for the ages. Uh, now, as far as the D1 championship is concerned, uh, one of my favorite memories, and you're probably not going to play this on your show, <laughs> say it, but one of my favorite memories is a game that Kevin and I did together, uh, Kansas against Northern Iowa, where Ali Farouk Manesh made took that ridiculous three-point shot. And yeah, you, can't, you can't drop the F word on radio here. <laughs> <laughs> and made it. Uh, and it led Northern Iowa to that that great upset over a really really good Kansas team. That's one of my that's one of my favorite NCAA tournament games on the Division One level. Well, we just had Kevin on uh, with us. Uh, how fun is it that you get to have this crew with Kevin and, and Reggie Miller? How, how much fun do you guys kind of have together doing games and everything? Well, I don't think I don't think that uh, you know what is the word that is beyond anything you can think of. That's how much fun I have. Uh, Kevin and I have been together for almost 20 years now as partners on the NCAA tournament, uh, and Kevin and Reggie and I have been together for the last seven or eight years. Uh, Kevin is a wonderful human being. Kevin is a great broadcaster, uh, and Reggie is, Reggie is a fabulous person. Uh, and really fun to be around. Uh, so the three of us together, we have a great time. Uh, hopefully that comes through on the air. Uh, it's just a privilege uh, for somebody like me to be working with high-quality people like them. Well, Dan, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk with us here and uh, have fun broadcasting the game. We look forward to uh, watching and hearing it. Well, I can't, I can't tell you. I can't give you any assurance about Kansas, but I can give you assurance that whatever happens, I will have fun. <laughs> there we go. He is Dan Bonner, fun haver and a member of the broadcast crew for the game upcoming on Friday with Kansas and Providence. Thanks again, man. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. All right, that was Dan Bonner joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, our NCAA tournament vignette, followed by a timeout. Then we'll come back and play for you. Jalen Wilson speaking with the media yesterday. This is RCST.